Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What you did you want? I'd like to stay alive for oh, six days. I'd say it to your face, I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them. What you doing down here, you showing me, man? Now, Ken, I know that you were watching the EFL Cup semi-final first leg between Southampton and Liverpool last night. Yes. Uh, so maybe you can help me out. Just what was written on that note that was passed to Daniel Sturridge while the game was still ongoing uh, last night? Mm-hmm. Tonight's bin night, remember? Who's the only player to have scored in Champions League, FA Cup, League Cup and UEFA Cup Finals? You have until full time, Daniel. But Could Stevie you? Gerrard. Yeah. But it's one of those really annoying questions that people, you know, pub questions. That yeah, yeah. Actually, I often get sent. Uh, 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 many times, say, during while our television show was on, mm-hmm. people thought that it would be useful to send me quiz questions just because there was a part of that show where I... Anyway, listen, that's mm-hmm. neither here nor there. That is one of the more popular ones, Ken, without yeah. doubt. Could you and your teammates please stop blasting 20-yard shots, 25 yards over the bar, please? Well, you know, you're full of all the talk, but uh, Jurgen Klopp has already explained what was on the paper. Ah. I mean, you might, I don't know if, if anyone didn't see this, but it was. It, it was quite bizarre, and I did. I have actually seen Klopp's uh, answer in, a, in the press conference, which didn't really go... Well, I mean, it was a change of formation, but also... Literally everyone in the team had to be had to make some sort of tactical adjustment. I think that that yeah. Um, I mean, what was what was puzzling was, was why it needed Sturridge to be running around with a piece of paper. It just looks <laughs> yeah. ridiculous whenever whenever there's a player with a piece of paper trying to show other players what's on the paper in the game. That doesn't look good. No, no. It's like what do we? What's become of us? <laughs> um, New new system, club said, whatever we want to call it, three five two. Lucas at the back, Emery in the centre, two winners, two wingers, two strikers, half space for Lallana and Coutinho. That's all. No more information. It was enough. Maybe it was a little bit too late. 
Um, we gave the paper when the game was already running again. That was our mistake. I would say seven or eight uh, players knew immediately Roberto Firmino needed a little longer to understand. But he was close enough to us. Things like this happen. Yeah. It didn't... It, it didn't... I mean, it was... It was kind of... Um, symbolic of a generally clueless performance mm. by Liverpool who have become are, be, are becalmed now after playing really well for several months uh, they're, they seem to have lost their way a little bit and uh, at a bad time in the season I mean Klopp was saying we should have lost 3-0 I mean I don't know if he was just saying that as a way to big up Lorius Carius who made a couple of saves mm. Um uh, but he said, "Look, I can't explain. You know, I can't explain this performance. I'm not used to reaction like this from my boys. But they have to accept tonight was not good. We didn't have a lot of chances. If we had any, this doesn't feel too good. So uh, only a trip to Old Trafford on Sunday mm. to look forward to. Uh, it seems a little late now, but I, sh- I suppose I should welcome you to the Irish Times Second Captain's podcast. Murph and Ken here. Uh, we're going to talk about the complete turnaround in fortunes that Miracle Man Mourinho has manufactured at Man United in recent months." Uh, and Dimitri Payet's next move. Uh, but I suppose we should have some uh, report on sport music uh, there, Simon. Thank you. Um, and the EFL Cup obviously has uh, taken centre stage. I didn't actually know until quite recently that EFL stands for the English Football League Cup. Yeah. Which is basically... It's a placeholder for a sponsor. Yeah, they've named it something other than the League Cup in the vain hope that people would think, oh, there's no problem here. They have found a sponsor. I'm not entirely sure what area of business... EFL Limited are in, mm. but uh, I'm sure they're a you know top top brand to be associated with. Yeah, it's just um, just the case of. I mean, it's the League Cup. I mean, we've been calling it that for a long number of years now. Why not just call it the League Cup? Well, because it's you know there's an unexploited commercial space there. You know, uh, it's I mean, it hasn't had a sponsor pretty much since what well, milk? I suppose mm. was milk the first one, the Milk Cup. Yeah, well, it seems like that was the cer- 80s. certainly the most... Uh, Rumbelows, Coca-Cola, Carling. Worthington. Worthington Cup. Don't yeah. forget the Worthington Cup. Uh, Little Woods Cup. Mm. Um, I think you've covered most, most of them there, have you? Probably. Uh, but at the moment, EFL, so hoping... Some, I mean, it's, it, there, there was the UEFA benchmarking report came out today. It has lots of fun facts. You sent it on to me, Ken. Did you, did you have a look at it? Oh... <laughs> well, I opened it. I opened it. I saw that there were many appendices, many pages. Uh, it was written in UEFA ease, which is a language all of its own. It's just written in. I gave up. I, you know what? I said, Ken's going to give me the highlights. Why would I? Why would I? Ken is reading this, so I don't have to. So why would I? Why would I take take that from me? Well, I just thought that you had a thirst for knowledge, but obviously I was wrong. Well, no, I have a thirst for knowledge once it's been filtered through that big old brain of yours, Ken. Educate me. Uh, well, just that the English league is a little bit underexploited commercially, it seems, particularly in the area of naming rights, where only 35% of the uh, stadiums are called after a company, mm-hmm. unlike Germany, where it's closer to 70%. Wow. They're doing a much better job of selling off the um, <clears throat> selling off their heritage in a way which I imagine will annoy some of the um, some of the English club owners. Why aren't we doing this? Um just looking at it, uh, England also has the oldest coaches in Europe. Average age of a football manager in England is 52. Only the Czech Republic boasts older managers, uh, but it's not really a major league. In Germany, it's 46, which is a big difference in average age. 
Um, and it's one of the reasons why they are sort of, you know, I mean, Thomas Tuchel will probably be earning a lot of money in the Premier League in five or six years. Mm. Um, I don't know if the same is going to be true of, you know, a, an English coach moving in the other direction. It's kind of the destination uh, the destination league. Um, what else? 45% of the shirt sponsors uh, in, the Premier, in English football are betting companies. I hadn't noticed this. I mean, I suppose, you, yeah, okay, a lot of them are betting companies. You can kind of, you know, yeah, them too, yeah, yeah, okay. But 45% is a lot. Um, you don't really see that Nine elsewhere. teams. Nine teams in the Premier League are sponsored by betting companies. Well, I don't know if it's just the Premier League or Premier League and Championship. Right, okay. Um but forty five percent, yeah, big. Wow. Uh, whereas in Germany, it's all it's mainly banks and insurance companies and things like that are the are the um, top ones. All kind of gambling, can some would say. Um, but they did. I, I had an angry Manchester United. Well, I don't know if they were angry. More, more a sort of a ha, Manchester United fan um, contact me on Twitter to say, ah, so not the most expensive after all. Now this is in relation to. Um, well, you mentioned the the incredible uh, miracle man Jose Mourinho and how he's turned mm-hmm. things around at Manchester United. Miracle uh, man Mourinho manufactured at Man United in recent months. I yeah. tried it as many M's as alliteration, I think they call it, Ken. I thought that might impress you. He reminds me a little bit of Captain Bly, um, having been thrown overboard by the mutineers and with the, you know, with the, with those the small band of loyalists who were also thrown out and into a lifeboat with like you know um a sort of a rubik's cube sized piece of hard tack and told you know in the middle of the southern ocean somehow managed to pilot his way given these you know meager resources all the all the way to i don't know timor or somewhere like this he 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 sailed uh in his in the, in a lifeboat for thousands of miles until he reached safe harbor Whereupon I think most of the men died of fever. It wasn't so much the starvation and thirst of the voyage across the open ocean in a you know fifteen foot boat that was dangerous, so much as the insects and plague that greeted them on their arrival in port. Uh, but you know, the, it can it, when when I think of great feats of leadership in history, Captain Bly's sail, his voyage in that lifeboat you know, starving and thirsty across that empty desert ocean, having been abandoned by mutineers in the middle of absolutely nowhere, with the clear the clear intention being that he would not be able to escape. He would die. You know, they would they didn't want to kill him themselves. That was just a little bit too much, but they assumed that he would die out there because how could anybody possibly escape given such meager resources? And Jose Mourinho's turnaround at so Manchester United. When you think of leadership, you think of great leadership throughout history. The first name that comes to mind is Captain Bly. Well, look, Captain Bly is, is a man... Who's had a number of? There's obviously been a lot of stories about this guy. It's my way or the highway. <laughs> yeah, the Bly it's way. way or the yes. Yeah. Shit, you got there literally <laughs> a half a second before me. There. There've been a lot of stories about Captain Bly and and some unflattering portrayals in movies. I forget who played him in uh, in the Marlon Brando one. Marlon yeah. Brando as Fletcher Christian. You know the the smouldering Marlon Brando, sniveling, ugly man yeah. compared to Marlon Brando. Brando in one of his sexiest roles mm. as Fletcher Christian. There was also Mel Gibson playing Fletcher Christian opposite Anthony Hopkins as Captain Bly. Um, Hopkins is playing Captain Bly as a, as a sort of a intensely repressed 
man. You know, he's he's just uh, he he's kind of. Uh, military discipline he can't open himself up to the human experiences that you know enrapture the rest of the crew I, was this really what Captain Bly was like nah Captain Bly was a, was a pedantic man sure Trevor Howard played him in the Marlon Brando Trevor Howard yeah and, and, and Trevor Howard just plays him as a complete brute just like a sadist he just wants to whip the men all the time uh, Anthony Hopkins at least is giving hints that there might be something in there, sort of, that he's keeping bottled up very tightly. Um, but I don't really think the real Captain Bly, I think, to be honest, the men need to look at themselves. You know, but of course, the Manchester United squad had a bit of a reputation for, they fragged a couple of their managers, you know. David Moyes, he ended up being thrown overboard. Lou Van Halle to walk the plank as well. Uh, it was a fairly, uh, you know, not the the record of the crew, or, or the, you know, the crew of the ship had, it wasn't a great. Uh, it wasn't the most loyal bunch. Mm. So when Captain Bly slash Marino arrived, it was a difficult situation. Um, but he hasn't got thrown overboard in this case. He's turned the whole thing around himself, and he's had so he's he's, he's had almost nothing. Well, I was kind of saying, look, Miguel Delaney had written a piece saying Mourinho has brought a smile back to the face of a lot of people at Manchester United, and he's kind of answered a few questions about the doubts, the mm. doubts that there were about his his um, was he still really top have we maybe it. seen the best of Jose Mourinho uh, and I suggested to Miguel that maybe the fact that he had the most expensive squad in the world might have something to do with the fact that Manchester United have now managed to win a few games in around nine matches uh, and I think that's I think Miguel probably said yeah I don't think that's fair enough there was a few people then who, who said oh look at this so you know the, this thing that you sometimes have where uh, where um there was a piece that I'd written at the start of at the end of October um, about Mourinho and his methods being looking as though they've been left behind. So a few yeah. Manchester United fans are saying, "Real hatchet job, yeah." You know, you're yeah. a twat. Yeah, yeah. and the you know, spiteful. Bet fake you are news. feeling stupid now. Yeah, you are fake news, right? <laughs> so, so uh, I thought, yeah, that that was a, a major black eye for me you know, when I wrote that. Manchester United were eight points off the top of the league. It's now ten points. Uh, but on the other hand, they have won a few of their games in a row, having gone through a spell where they really won very few. I think it's two and eleven league matches. Um, but I do feel that having the most expensive squad in world football is a significant factor here. You know, when I was comparing Mourinho to Captain Bly in that lifeboat with his little tiny piece of hardtack and his no water, I was not being serious. I think actually Mario has got more resources than that relative to that. He's, it's more as though he's, he's, uh, he's in Roman Abramovich's yacht, Eclipse, you know, and Eclipse has actually been, been sailing round and round in circles as Mourinho, you know, capered about on the bridge trying to, fi- trying to figure out the controls and the thing's just been st- steaming in concentric circles. Uh, but, and now he's managed to sort of click the autopilot and it's, it's straightened out into a straight line. Hmm. And Manchester uh, FC Manchester United is on its way. You know, this is the fact. This is the fact of it. Yeah, but the surely the argument is that Look at the this. most expensive uh, squad in world football in October when you wrote that vile piece uh, <laughs> in the Irish Times. I mean, didn't he have all of the advantages, advantages that we're now saying, well, obviously he could do this back then? Um... Well, he had, yeah, but he but he kept he kept making the mistakes. 
he, he was making a series of the, the reason, I, in my opinion, that Manchester United struggled at the start of the season was Jose Mourinho's mistakes. Yes, that is, and I would agree with that. He has, he, it, the, the mistakes extent, but, have become progressively less and less, and the well, team has actually started to but play well. He has fixed the mistakes. So he's made own, mistakes, he's fixed them. I mean, I, I don't know how much credit. Do you give it, someone yeah, for fixing their own mistakes? Well, you've got to give him a little bit of credit, don't you? He accidentally sets his, to stick with the ship metaphor, he accidentally sets the ship on fire and then manages to put out the fire in the ship. Yeah, and then continues captain, on the voyage. Captain of the year material? Are we talking sea no, captain I'd, of the year? No, no. But I Sixth think, in the league. But I th- They're the most expensive squad in the world. No, I was going to say one man online hate mob. Uh, where are you? Looking for you. Not the most expensive, so they said. Quote, quoting, um, where is this bloody thing? Anyway, I can't, I can't, I can't call you out. One man online hate mob, hate mob. But uh, to say he knows who he is, though, Ken. Oh yeah, you know, you know, who you are. Oh, here we are, Tom Clegg. Tom Clegg. Mm. Um, he said basically, look, it's not the most expensive squad in the world, and, and cited this uh, recent UEFA report, the UEFA benchmarking report. In fact, that I was just talking to you about. But of course, the UEFA benchmarking report. Uh, when it lists off the squad uh, costs, the mm. squad measured by transfer fees is only going up to financial year 2015, which is before Manchester United broke the world transfer record uh, and also signed Henrik Mkhitaryan, that squad-filling uh, player mm. who Mourinho ignored for a while, uh, and Eric Bailly and so on. So now they, in fact, are. They are more expensive than Real Madrid. So, to me, the fact that they've won a, a few games in a row is long overdue. You know, it's not, it's not necessarily a case of, wow, you know, after the reigns of Moyes and Van Hal, Reno has proved that, you know, this is the real deal. I mean, I know there is obviously that sense of optimism among Manchester United fans who want to believe that. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a kind of, of course, if you support Manchester United, you want to believe this is... You know, all coming together beautifully, and this—you know—he's the right man. But I don't think that we've seen really enough evidence for that yet. I think what we've seen is a we've team got a football show on Monday morning that uh, where you might be able to say with a fair degree of certainty then uh, what we have seen. You know, the 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 level of progress that we've seen from. I mean, this is—I mean, forget about Red Monday, Ken. Mm. This might be the biggest game of the century. So far. <laughs> don't you agree? Uh, Don't you think? Biggest game in the century. You know, sixth against second. Always a big game. It's always a big game. Um, Yeah, I mean, again, even even this this is this will be a big. This will be one of the biggest games. I mean, they've played Tottenham and Arsenal on this run. They've um, they beat Tottenham. Well, Arsenal is in their unbeaten run. Mm. They were going to beat Arsenal, but then they conceded a last minute goal to Olivier Giroud. They've beaten Tottenham one nil. Manchester United were very good against Arsenal that day. I mean, they did play well. Like that was one of the more blatant examples of someone nicking a draw. Yeah, I would, I would agree. But you know, I think they should have won a lot more games. I still think when you look at the look at where they're at, this has been, this has not gone well. Sixth for a team that costs this much money is no good. And win a lot more games in a row. And they get up to a more respectable position. I, I mean, I, I kind of feel as though respectable for the most expensive squad in the world is, you know, at least the top three position. Mm. You know, I mean, even that, even that. Given is the not amount really of games enough. that the the top six teams are going to be playing against each other over the next couple of weeks, this does have the potential after 
all of the wins that they've put together, they, there is a potential for them to actually start moving up the table in the next couple of weeks, though. And I think that's maybe there. Anyway, we've maybe we've talked enough about Manchester United until we speak to Rob Smythe uh, in a couple of minutes. What else have you got for me there? Well, there was the sad news that Graham Taylor has died today. Yeah, very sad news. Yeah. Um, of, uh, well, a suspected heart attack. For, this is his family said, with the greatest sadness, we have to announce Graham passed away at his home early this morning of a suspected heart attack. The family are devastated by this sudden and totally unexpected loss. That's very sad. Graham Taylor was only 72 years old. He was a really, really lovely guy. We met him a couple of times. Um, we used to talk to him a good bit on the radio show. He came over to um, one of the road shows in Glen Bay in Kerry. I think you had breakfast with him that day, him and his wife Rita. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, he, he uh, was telling a story on air about how excited the local kids were. He, they ran into the pub and asked when Terry Venables was going to be there. <laughs> uh, 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 just generally, an ex- like a very, very... Basically, when you meet people involved in football, particularly, say, people who are now working in punditry and are a part of the sort of press machinery, publicity machinery, they're very, very comfortable talking about two topics, which is football and themselves. And anything outside of that is very much foreign territory. Graham, Graham Taylor was the kind of guy who was very eager to ask you about sort of what was going on with you and the radio show and the radio station you listened, you worked for at the time. Mm. Um, and uh, it's weird. It, that happens very seldom. Yeah, he, no, he was a lovely guy. And, you know, he was the kind of guy who would, there was kind of no <clears throat> egotism about him. Uh, certainly not in the time that we knew. I mean, Taylor had been the England manager. Uh, I mean, he was a very successful manager in the nineteen eighties. He worked. He he brought Watford up the divisions. He got Watford. Watford finished second in the league one season. They also got to the FA Cup final uh, and lost to Everton. He brought through players like John Barnes. Um, players. I mean, some great players speak very highly of him. You know, Barnes, uh, Paul McGrath. Um, he brought McGrath to Aston Villa. McGrath loved him. Uh, Dwight York. Dwight York, the night before the 99 Champions League final, rang Graham Taylor to blub down the phone at him about, just say, thank you so much for everything you did for me. You know, I'm going to play the European Cup final tomorrow night and I couldn't have done it without you. All this type of stuff. Um, he managed England because the season that Bobby Robson was leaving, Bobby Robson was leaving after the 1990 World Cup, Aston Villa, Graham Taylor's team had finished second to Liverpool in the uh, league that season. So he was kind of the outstanding English manager at that time. Uh, unfortunately for him, he took over at a time when English football, the sort of talent in English football was a little bit, there was a bit of a choke point there in the supply. Things had been going quite, they had a, they had a very good team in the late 80s. I mean, a lot of the skillful players who were not really uh, doing so well. He made, he made a couple of bad decisions as well. Um he didn't realise, I suppose, that Peter Beardsley was still going to be one of the best players in the league in 1996. You know, mm. it was kind of, you know, maybe he moved on, tried to move on too quickly. Uh, the type of style that he wants to play wasn't something that went down well with the journalists. But mainly, when you lose games and play badly, you know, you're not going to, mm. you know, you're not going to get some very good press. I mean, Taylor uh, agreed to allow the filming of the documentary. The documentary, which is which is incredibly, I mean, it's it's just a pity there aren't more of people with the kind of, 
I suppose, benign kind of, kind of outlook and confidence of Graham Taylor that, have, you know, what's the worst that could happen? You know, we'd have a lot more good football movies if more managers were ready to were ready to sort of take the risk uh, that he took in, in, in letting those cameras follow the failed English qualification campaign for USA 94. Um, but yeah, I mean, he obviously then got absolutely brutalized in the press. Um, Turnip and all this kind of stuff. Swedes, that was after, mm. that was in the 92 European Championship, Sweden beat England and Swedes two, Turnips one, all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, and I don't know if people if people didn't know Graham Taylor had never met him, maybe you could see him in the distressed kind of, you know, the angry man shouting at the linesman, "You've just cost me my job," in that thing, yeah. and, and think yeah. that you know here was a kind of, you know, I think what you got to remember is the pressure that someone's under. It's such an extreme situation. It was the biggest job of his life, you know, to be under that kind of pressure. Um, you're not really thinking about how things look when you're ranting and raving at the linesman who literally has cost you. <laughs> he literally has cost you your job. Uh, he was a honestly a really, really lovely guy. And um, I was very sad to hear about this. Yeah. This uh, Elton John has paid him a couple of tributes as well. And it's crazy looking back in the mid 80s. And they were it was more than just a chairman-manager relationship. They were very, very close. Both of them have described the other as like a brother to them. Uh, Graham Taylor in the past and Elton John uh, on uh, Instagram just today. But is there anything else you want to bring us in this report on sport? Um, I think that will probably do it for now, actually. Okay. I mean, we mentioned the Pyatt. We're, we're going to talk to Philippe in a little while, but this is um, Pyatt saying that he wants to leave, or he's told Billich he wants to leave West Ham. Saw footage of Billich um, complaining about this, so we'll hear more about what's going on there from Philippe shortly. Okay, that's the end of Ken Early's report on sport. I knew the place. Clough, but he calls me Rabbi, didn't know them. He said to me, what can you do that the boss hasn't done? You, the boss. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. But there's no way you can win it better. Why it's not? Only, no, 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 no. But that's the only hope I've we're, got. We've only lost four matches. Then. But that, well, that I can only lose three. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. Clough, it calls me Ravi. Good luck. Now that might that might be you know aiming for utopia, and it might be might mean being a little bit stupid, but that is the way I am. I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that. I want to be like me. Okay, waiting on the line to talk to us about Manchester United is Rob Smythe. Rob, I'm wondering, when you look at this uh, nine-match winning run that Manchester United have been on, how much credit do you give Jose Mourinho for turning this wreck of a club around? Yeah, I'm pretty impressed. I think particularly given the amount of pressure he was under, whether that was fair or not is debatable, but he was under a lot of pressure after that Chelsea game. And since then, I think they've only lost once, and that was in the Europa League, a kind of largely irrelevant game. There's a clear plan now. I think the, the, the Middlesbrough game feels like a significant moment because that was the kind of game under Van Gaal they were probably certainly not have won, probably have lost. And for the, maybe one of the few times since Ferguson left, it felt like a Ferguson victory. It felt like you know, a fortress is such a cliche, but it kind of did for the first time in a long time. Um and I think that's the most important thing, even more than the results, which have obviously been great. There's just a, a mood and a confidence and a, not quite an arrogance, but 
it's an intimidating place to go again, which it hasn't been for a long time. Didn't they win eight out of the last ten at home under Van Hal? I mean, they, they were always pretty decent. I mean, uh, what I'm saying is, I, it's surprising to me to hear people talk about how Jose Mourinho has turned Old Trafford into a fortress. I, I wasn't aware that Old Trafford had become an easy place to go at any point, really. Do you think? I mean, well, I, I don't know. I mean, it feels like for teams like Southampton, Swansea, and that's going to sound disparaging. It's not meant to, but they they had great success there against Moyes and Van Gaal. I don't know. It felt like a place where teams were not really scared. And I think for a while they kind of still were, but then the kind of credit that was built up in the Ferguson years was slowly running out. I don't know. There were times when they did look great at home. They had that three-week spell under Van Gaal where they thrashed Tottenham and they thrashed Man City and they played brilliantly at Anfield. But I think this is the best they've played, apart from that little spell, this is the best I've played since Ferguson left. Hmm. It was after, you know, I mean, there's, there's been nine wins in a row, but before that there was two wins in 11 in the league, which is probably their worst run for, for about 25 years. I mean, do you get the sense that maybe yeah. just, that that enabled Jose You're Mourinho right. to, to kind of put across the idea that the team he'd taken over was far worse than it in fact was? Yeah, possibly. The thing, and you're right. They're probably not as good as people are saying now, and they certainly weren't as bad as people were saying when they won two and eleven. The only thing about the two and eleven is, particularly at home, they played really well in a lot of games. They had that game against Burnley when they had a grotesque number of shots. They should have beaten Arsenal. They should have beaten Stoke. And I know ultimately, if you don't win games, then that's your own fault. But there, there were signs even then, I think, um, that they were. I, I think the, the, the big thing, the big difference now, is the speed of their play. I, mean, I know last week it was a reserve team pretty much against Reading, and it was Reading. But the speed of the play was so impressive, and that's something they had lost. And actually, they didn't really have at the start of this season under Mourinho either. That seems to have really come back. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't get me wrong. I, don't, I think it's too early to say they're back to the level they were at under Sir Alex Ferguson. I don't think it's realistic that they win the league this year. They could still finish outside the top four, certainly. Um, but I do think there's been discernible progress from when he took over, and even from probably September and October. Yeah, I get the feeling actually you're a bit more agnostic about this than than a lot of the um, you know a lot of a lot of people following Manchester United out there. Uh, I mean, it seems to me as though this improvement has resulted almost entirely from Jose Mourinho actually getting out of the way and like correcting the mistakes that he was making. He, he was he was making mistakes. I mean, he 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 was playing Marlon Fellaini. Uh, he discovers that if you play Carrick instead of Fellaini. The team plays better. It plays. It plays faster. He was play, He he left. He banished Mkhitaryan for no reason, and discovers that when he's back in the team, he's actually, you know, the German footballer of the year is a pretty useful guy to have in your team. Yeah, the carrot one. I'd love to know the logic because I don't think anyone's being wise after the event. And a lot of people said at the time that they couldn't really understand that he's such a good footballer, and he he. I think he's responsible not only for the improvement going forward, but also the defensive improvement. Mkhitaryan. I, I'm loath to criticise him too much because we just don't know what state Mkhitaryan was in. He may have been playing absolutely dreadfully in training. and We just don't know. At the time, you kind of wonder, is it Reno kind of putting down a marker, as he often does? And it looks like he might be doing that now with Luke Shaw. I don't know. I'd, I'd prefer to give him the kind of benefit for that and say that he judged it correctly and put him in at a time when he was ready and he clicked instantly, but I don't know. We, we, we just, I think it's really difficult to judge because we don't see them train every day. We don't know exactly what Mourinho is doing. Um, the one thing I would say is that even great managers often do get lucky. Like with the, he seems to have stumbled upon a midfield now of Carrick Herrera and Pogba. I mean, the famous 
example with Sir Alex Ferguson was a treble year. He didn't really want to play York and Cole. He wanted to play York and Cliver. Then he tried York and Solskjaer. Then he tried York and Sheringham. Then he tried York and Giggs. And it was almost as an afterthought. He played with Cole once in a draw at West Ham. And then about six weeks later, he went back to them. And it was just, just instantly, pretty much instantly, the best strike pair in Europe. So I think even, even great managers do need that luck. I think there are other elements, though. Jones and Rocker, I mean, whatever he's doing with them has worked really, really well. Um, and he's even managed to keep Jones fit. So I think there are things he's done well. Um also, the fixtures have been kind, though. I mean, they haven't had too many hard fixtures in this run. That's why I'd be loath to get carried away. I think Sunday will tell us so much about kind of what level they're at now and what they're capable of achieving for the rest of the season. Yeah, I mean, this is what makes it so... It comes at such an interesting point in the season, I think, for both teams because Manchester United have finally developed a bit of momentum but still need to to close uh, ground on the Blue a good bit ahead of them, but, but who maybe are... You know, losing a bit of form at the wrong time of season. Obviously, they're going to be without uh, Mane, uh, who's been very important for them, particularly in, um, I suppose, difficult away games like this. So, uh, how how confident do you think Manchester United will be feeling? Do you think this is a game that they'll uh, that they'll be worried about, or that they're keen to go out there and show, right, this is it, we're we're back, we're going to finish, maybe second, who knows, maybe even first. Yeah, I think they will feel quite confident, and I think they'll they'll make a flying start to the game. It'll be interesting to see because when they played City in September, they were so passive and he got that completely wrong and it kind of cost them the game before they laid a glove on City. They were 2-0 down. Um, I think things have changed now and also, as you say, Liverpool, I wouldn't say they're fragile, but they're missing some really important players. We don't know if Coutinho will start. Their form is, I mean, it's still okay. They've still won, I think they've still got like 13 points in the last five league games, but obviously they've had a few bad cup results and they just haven't looked quite as electric as they did so i think i think united will go out and from the start try to um yeah make a statement really um and it'll be interesting to see how liverpool do as well because you would expect them to do the same it could be it could be really often these games aren't actually as tactically interesting as people like to think they are but i think the first 20 minutes of this game will be really really interesting where do you see manchester United actually finishing this season I think anywhere between second and sixth is probably realistic. I think a very good team are going to finish sixth this year for the first time in ages. I, and I get why people will criticise them for being sixth now. But actually, if you look at their points total, if you extrapolate that for a whole season, that would have put them second last season. Um, so I just think the standard has improved now. Last year, everyone was kind of, I don't know what they were doing really, apart from Leicester. But So I th- I think it's so tight. I would If I was betting, I would probably say between... I probably f- maybe fourth, um, but I think anywhere between second and sixth is realistic. I think first is it's probably too early for this particular team. Um, I think they could theoretically finish above Chelsea, but I don't see them being able to get enough points to finish above everybody in that pack because um, one of them will have a really really strong end to the season. That would kind of leave United needing to win pretty much every game, and that's not going to happen. Okay, Rob, great to talk to you on the show today. Cheers. I care not one jot about 
his supreme talent. He launched himself six feet into the crowd and Kung Fu kicked a supporter. So you're saying the, the Emperor has no clothes. Liverpool are going to take him down a peg or two on Sunday. Is that what we were, we were predicting here, Ken? Um, it's difficult to know, but um, I, I wouldn't say the Emperor has no clothes. But I would say at, the, at this time the Emperor is wearing burlap robes as opposed to the, um, you know, say if if at the top of the thing, the scale of things the Emperor could possibly be wearing would be Jose Mourinho's old coat from 2004, 2005. Yeah. I'd say he's on a point somewhere between that and naked. And total nudity. Yeah, but, but uh, he's not quite he's not quite at that 2005 He's wearing like level. a moo-moo. <laughs> he's he's not, not a million miles away from nude, but at the same time. I mean, I think, it's only one item of clothing, but I mean, it does cover you know, the vast majority of his I, I think, you know, a guy who, who says, who basically says, my presence is a guarantee of victory, mm. has to win. And especially when you've got the most expensive squad in the world, you know? Sixth isn't good enough. You win a few games against the chickens, it doesn't change much. You know, these are the types of games that mm. he has to win. And these, and you know, when Chelsea, when he plays Chelsea again, that's that, that 4 0, that's going to have to be redressed somewhat in order for people to really say, you know, for, for reasons other than optimism, you know, I want this, I want Manchester United to be back. For reasons other than that, you know, for, for there to be a more solid basis for that kind of feeling. Uh, McDevitt never pushes you for stuff like this, but this is a whole new regime, so I'm going to have to ask you for a prediction. I'm sorry. A prediction? Yeah. I asked you it two minutes ago, but fine. I'll go um, nil all. <laughs> what way midfield schemer, Dimitri Payet, Ken? Mm. West Ham fans are no doubt sweating over the availability of their French talisman after the end of the transfer window. I see West Ham United head coach Slavin Bilic has launched an astonishing verbal broadside today. Could you bring me the very latest on that? He says, we've said we don't want to sell our best players, but Pyatt does not want to play for us. He wants to leave. He's definitely our best player. That's why we gave him a long contract. That long contract was like this time last year. Uh, we're not going to sell him. Uh, I feel let down. I feel angry. I spoke to the chairman. It's not a money issue. We gave him a long contract because we wanted him to stay. So apparently he's he's basically out of the team for the next game. He's not going to be even training with the team. He's told Bill that he wants to go, but West Ham don't want to let him go. So to try and... Um, clear up what's happening here. We're joined by Philippe Auclair. Philippe, we've been you know, talking about this footage of the pale with anger, Savin Bilic, uh, explaining that uh, Payet had told them that he wanted to leave West Ham. Has this news come completely out of the blue? Um, not really. I mean, uh, the, the fact that apparently he doesn't want to, to play or even train anymore um, comes a bit as a shock, but not the... Um, the fact that he's um, he's been looking elsewhere, and his agent in particular uh, has been looking elsewhere on his behalf for quite a while now. Um, I'm afraid, yes, that doesn't come as a big surprise that, uh, in particular, his advisor Jacques Olivier Auguste uh, has been um, creating a little bit of trouble, shall we say, around Dimitri Payet. Um, I, I tried to talk to Payet myself um, when they played uh, in Manchester. Uh, not that long ago, and he's usually a very, you know, cool, pleasant sort of character. Just walked past, didn't stop to say hello or goodbye or anything. Um, 
I also talked with Simon Bilic on this occasion, and, and he was already <laughs> quite angry. He could see that something was afoot. And um, I think that one of the reasons why we're not so surprised by what is happening is the fact that the negotiations to uh, improve the contract, which he had already improved in February last year, uh, have obviously been stalling. So it's very much um, a communications operation, which is led by his agent. That's my reading of it. Do you think that Dmitry Payet, do you have any sympathy for him if, no. say, you don't? No, I don't. Doesn't he deserve to be playing for a better team than West Ham United? I don't think you deserve to play for, I mean, I, I, I mean, we're going somewhere else here. It's a difference. If he wants to play for another team, wants to move clubs, it's absolutely fine, of course. Um, but the way things have been going, which explains Slaven Bilic's anger, is not the fact that Dimitri Breit wants to move to another club. It's the, it's the way that uh, a disinformation campaign has been orchestrated, again, I say, by his agent, uh, using some French media uh, to basically destabilize the whole thing and, and create a, a terrible situation, uh, which honestly West Ham could do without. Um, I think it's the, it's the method rather than the, uh, the fact uh, or the act which has disappointed um, West Ham so much. I mean, Billich so much. Uh, you know, there, there were probably some more elegant ways of, of going about this than basically, again, you know, I know it's, uh, it's common practice in the world of football, but by basically feeding stories and making sure there's as much trouble as possible and then go to the club because, uh, and, and basically blackmail them saying, well, if you don't agree to our terms, you know, we're going to have to leave. That's, I mean, it's not exactly exemplary, Ken. Mm. Although, uh, I, I suppose it depends what kind of offers he's got. I mean, I, I was surprised to see that Marseille were, mm. were one of the team. I mean, Marseille is the team, obviously, that he left for 10.7 million pounds. Will, Marseille will not get Dimitri Payet. They won't. So, so this is just no, a bunch of nonsense that we're reading. Because it seemed... It it's, seemed ab it's absolute nonsense. Uh, and um, should it happen, of course, I'm going to pass as very, very, very silly. Um, there are s several reasons for that. Uh, according to what I've heard, this campaign, uh, which has been um, led in uh, French media in particular, uh, I don't think OM have been particularly innocent in that, but they have different aims. Marseille don't have the money to pay either the transfer fee um, because he's under contract until 2021, I believe. Mm. And um, and we're talking about a transfer fee which would be at least 60 million euros uh, with no possibility of resale because by the, um, you know, uh, the end of the contract, or the new contract, he would be very much entering the, uh, the twilight years of his career. He's already 29. Marseille, the new regime in Marseille, wants to assiege the, uh, the fans and wants to be seen as a big uh, mover on the French market. So what do you do? Uh, you talk about the return of a player who was had an absolutely exceptional season before he went to West Ham. Okay, fair enough. That's fine. Then you get uh, with uh, in, in touch with the agent, and uh, the agent also has his own plans. It's a question of, uh, uh, it can say, a, a coincidence, a concatenation of interests. Um, which are linked, but which don't mean at all that Dimitri Payet is a target for Olympique de Marseille. As I said, 60 million euros is way out 
uh, way of the mark for a club like Marseille, who is having a lot of trouble at the moment, in every sense of the word. Um, the question of the salary, even if, Mars, if Payet were to accept um, a drop in his wages, which I find very, very unlikely, um, that would create a precedent in the Marseille dressing room where many players would say, well, hold on a minute, he's paid three times what I'm paid. Well, you can imagine the nonsense that it would start. Mm. And also the personality of the new owner of Marseille, Frank McCourt, and I think anybody who follows American sports will tell you that Frank McCourt is not somebody who puts money on the table to watch it burn uh, without any compensation. Mm. So it just, in terms of um, the move to Marseille, it makes absolutely no sense in sporting terms and economic terms. It makes a lot of sense in, in terms of communication and strategy uh, for a player, an agent, uh, and a club, which also explains, I, I believe, why Slaven Bilic is so angry, because what I'm telling you now, which is my personal opinion, I might be wrong, is not something that is has escaped his attention. Yeah. I mean, just just on the subject of Marseille, actually, it is sort of an interesting situation. Um, Frank McCourt bought the team for what was reported at 45 million euros, so you can see how he might be unwilling to pay, you know, 30% on top of that for just a player. Um, but I also have to wonder why he bought Marseille, because although 45 million euros doesn't, doesn't seem like a lot to pay for a club like Marseille, I mean, with such a great history, you know, a big stadium, uh, a yep. lot of things going for it. They are in a league against Paris Saint-Germain, who are like an oligarch-fueled sort of entity, Monaco, yep. maybe maybe are still in that category as well with Donald Trump's friend, um, Ruba Lovelev, <laughs> uh, down the road. So, so for an American... Uh, businessman, um, we we know that American owners are, are usually more parsimonious. I mean, they want to see return on investment. This is usually the way they are. It seems as though Marseille are, you know, if they if they ever want to win the Fr uh, French league, are probably going to have to spend a lot of money to do that. Nobody's going to be making much of a profit. Um, I entirely agree with you, and um, I'll be absolutely honest. It's a question that uh, we've all been asking ourselves in France ever since. It appeared that uh, Mr. McCourt was indeed going to be um, the new owner of Marseille. Uh, it's incomprehensible. It's totally, utterly incomprehensible. Uh, the assets are, I would say they're nil. I wouldn't say that. But they don't own their stadium. Um, they have at the moment a setup, which means that uh, some groups of fans still have the right uh, to sell season tickets. Uh, it's a club that is uh, riven by uh, political conflict. Uh, it's a club that is not profitable, hasn't been for a very long time. And when you look at uh, Frank McCourt's track record, you, you think there is absolutely no way that this guy uh, would ever uh, buy a club, you know, to become one of those um, sugar daddies. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I confess my ignorance, but I, I will say one thing is that this ignorance is shared by absolutely everybody I know in France, including people who, are, who have been following Marseille very closely. Yeah. There, there, there is a rat somewhere. There is something not quite right in, in, this, in what has happened with Marseille. I mean, it's been the case for a very long time with Marseille. So it's been a bit of a funny club. It's a great club. It's a wonderful club. It's been a great team. Uh, the fans are, are fantastic. The stadium is just magnificent. Um, there's plenty. It's a proper football city. 
in, in absolute terms, yes, if you wanted to create a, a, a powerhouse, um, you wouldn't have gone actually to Paris, you would have gone to Marseille. Mm. You know, that, that is the proper, it's a proper football capital of, of France. It's been for a very, very long time. So um, uh, I, I must confess, yes, my ignorance as, and, and, uh, and my curiosity as well, because I'd very much like to know what exactly, what kind of deal was struck between Margarita Louis-Dreyfus and uh, Frank McCourt when he took control of the club. It's not clear at all. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess then the question is if, I mean, you're saying Marseille is, is almost certainly not a possibility for Payet. What are the possibilities? I mean, at the kind of, the kind of uh, money that West Ham would demand for him, there are yeah. really only a couple of Premier League teams who could buy him. There's also the possibility of Paris. And the only remaining possibility, as far as I can see, is China. So, uh, yeah, um, you have to think Paris, you know, when you've played for Marseille, going to PSG, a bit difficult. Mm. Uh, you take going from Liverpool to Manchester United and you multiply by two, I think you're more or less there. Mm. So, would not would not necessarily be a, a very popular move. Um, uh, and see, I, I don't see, I don't see, Philippe, that, that, you know, teams like, I mean, who are the Premier League teams that could afford to sign him, which, which would be worth joining, considering he's already at West Ham and who, who are a team of a certain level. I mean, you're talking about the, the Manchester clubs, maybe Liverpool, maybe, you know, Arsenal. Uh, yeah. But I, I don't really see any of those teams wanting to pay 60 million euros for a 29 year old player. Which is one of the reasons why Marseille has been put in the front line by the people who would like something to happen. It's, it's a tool, it's a negotiating tool, I think, at the beginning. I mean, that was my reading when I started, when I saw the uh, front pages in, in the French papers. I thought, oh, okay, um, the negotiations for, you know, uh, uh, a renewal of his contract with West Ham uh, haven't gone the way perhaps he and his advisors wanted it to go. This was my interpretation of it. So it's a means to put pressure on the club and then the club responds by saying well we won't sell you and uh, you can't train with the, for the first team and you're not going to play against Crystal Palace and so forth so it's open war now mm. um, so it's very much you know I look at you in the eyes playing chicken and uh, I agree with you I can't see which clubs would take him um, there was talk at one point of an interest of Inter Milan I should say Inter sorry otherwise all the purists are going to have a good me yeah. Um, but clearly, I mean, the one uh, hypothesis uh, is like for everybody else in the world at the moment, it seems China, whoever that is, a mysterious Chinese club that nobody knows about, <laughs> um, which is also a, bar a bargaining and negotiating tool. And what's your view on that? It's something we've been... It's got out of control. We have been talking about, about the... You know, it's it's pretty obvious what a lot of people in English football think of the idea of moving to China. I mean, you have, I think Jamie Carragher, what was the, he referred to Oscar's move as an embarrassment, Oscar mm -hmm. moving to China. Oh, I don't know. I mean, looking at the figures involved, I can kind of see what, why yeah. Oscar was interested in moving to China. I wonder what your, what your view of this is. Do you, would you see it as a, as a kind of a professional disgrace uh, to move to China to oh. a much better paying job, or, or are you, you know, what's, what's your no, opinion? No, not a disgrace. I mean, why would you call that a disgrace? You, you can think, you know, sport, in sporting terms, at the moment, it's, uh, yeah, okay, it's, uh, it's like a retirement. Um, but no, I mean, the professionals uh, can, uh, I could ask this question of me, my great loyalty to, to France football, if a magazine came tomorrow and proposed me four times my current pay, 
uh, I might think twice about it. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. What, 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 why should we? I mean, and, and, and especially since the Premier League has precisely worked like that for a number of years. Mm. Why have all these players from abroad come to the Premier League? Well, it's because the Premier League is offering salaries which are three, four times what they can earn in France or sometimes in Spain. And, and I don't think that there should be, we should go on our moral high horse about that. It's a professional choice. It might be a very silly choice in terms of uh, your career in sporting terms. Dimitri Payet is 29. He's not, he's not at the beginning of his career. Um, he's not, you know, he's got one big contract left in him, basically. Mm. And I think when you come to realize that, you, you make your own choices. I'm not going to say he's going to go to China, but if he goes to China, well, you know, good luck to him. I don't, I don't mind. Yeah. Why, why are people so upset about this? I, I genuinely do not understand. You can be upset in principle for the whole system. Yes, that you can be. The fact that a country with no footballing tradition, clubs which are just, uh, well, um, sometimes a little bit shady in terms of the way they finance and so forth, are suddenly putting all this money on the table. Okay, you can be very concerned about that. But in terms of the individuals who are concerned, I think it's a little bit uh, hypocritical to say the least. Uh, to you know, to put the blame at their door. Yeah, we are uh, in agreement on that, Philippe. Uh, thanks, man, for joining us on the show today. Thank you very much. Olympic Marseille story seems a bit, I don't know, fake newsy, Ken? <laughs> it's a bit fake newsy, yeah. I mean, I don't, it's hard to know. What is fake news now these days? I mean, it seems to be pretty much anything. I mean, does it even have to be untrue? Mm. I don't know if untruth is necessarily a condition. Um, I actually need to think about this, this fake news thing. Well, there's, I mean, difference, I, there's a difference between fake news and false news. Yeah. Like false news is, was the fake news of the campaign of the election campaign. Fake news is when you just completely make something up. Yeah, like you you open up your your computer and you write, 
Hillary Clinton abducted by aliens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. uh, False news is when you report something that turns out not to be true. (laughs) This was locker room talk. (laughs) Um, When, say, say for instance, you speak to some, you know, agents of security services and they tell you a load of lies and you Mm. report that, that's not fake news. No. It, it may it may be wildly untrue, but it's not fake. What did you think of the whole BuzzFeed thing? The uh, the reason for I think it was uh, unhelpful. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was I, yeah, quite they, un, quite unhelpful. Um, when, when they basically said, "Let's we'll you know this this document is being passed around at the highest level of American government." Therefore, everyone in America <laughs> should read this. I mean, if it's being passed around. Now there it's, are, it's like everyone has it. We you know? don't know whether it's true, and there are a lot of reasons to suspect that, in fact, it's completely untrue. Yeah. However... It's quite Trumpian, actually, this idea that uh, the, the people deserve to know. You know, it's like a lot of uh, a lot of important people. See, I do... A lot of important people know this. America, so. get it right. I, do, I think it's important to, at least, for you know, for, uh, for a major uh, media brand, or even minor media brand, to at least only put out information that you think is probably true. Mm. Like, I don't know where exactly you draw the line in terms of how many sources do you need to, to run with a story? How true is true? How, mm. Is it 95% confident, 98% confident, 51% confident? <laughs> but if you're like 30% confident that this yeah. might be true, you probably need to increase the percentage a little bit. Otherwise, you kind of you can't just put out something that could be totally made up and say, well, now people can make up their own minds. It's like... You know, it's kind of what we pay you guys to do. You know, it's like That's you should make your, your mind up, and then we'll make up your mind once you're happy that it's true. Try to restrict yourself to putting out stuff that you have a reasonable degree of confidence mm. is is probably true. Okay. That would be a good. Okay, well, good I'm one hundred percent. I'm one hundred percent. I can stand over all of the journalism in this uh, show thus far, yeah. but maybe we should wrap it up there before uh, we go too deep. Uh, that's pretty much it. You can contact us on Twitter at Second Captains on Facebook.com forward slash Second Captains. Uh, you can email us on editor at secondcaptains.com. Uh, we have another show out tonight, uh, today, well, it'll be this evening, uh, presented by Richie Sadler and Bobby, of course, who will also be in here, uh, uh, which should be a lot of fun. So we're really looking forward to that. Uh, thanks, William, for listening. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Simon. And uh, yeah, we'll chat to you next week. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home.